Jackson Gahad, I'm Nathan Bell. Steve Hartlett sitting across from me. Steve, what's going on, man? Hey, nothing much. It's uh, it's hot out here again, but man, we have a great topic for tonight. Can I can I already hint at what it is? Yeah, so, go for it. So we're gonna take talk, it away. We're gonna do some book reviews, and I am just thrilled. I'm really jazzed about this because I'm a guy that likes books. Like I love what Erasmus said. You've probably heard it. He said, "If I get a little money, I buy books." And if I have yes. any money left over, I buy food and clothes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Man, after my own heart. Yes, that is that is so true, so great. Um, and we're going to get into that. But first, we've received a call from a person we have not heard from in quite some time. So I'm going to uh, play this message that we got. And you all have been asking for him. Oh, it's the Reverend James King. Of the James King, King James, Bible-believing, teaching, preaching ministries. Friends, I know it's been a long time since I have shed the light of my own personal holiness on this dark, dank, septic tank known as the <laughs> These Go to Eleven podcast. Remember, friends, a more accurate name is the These Will Be Going to Hell podcast in just a matter of time, friends. <laughs> Now, uh, some of you have apparently wondered if I finally gave up the good fight on seeking to bring down this ragtag, pathetic excuse of an army of darkness. Friends, I've never given up on any holy task I've set my Christ-like mind to. Uh, I remember that satanic pornography-distributing empire known as Blockbuster back when it seemed to rule the world. Remember that, friends? Their stores were everywhere. Peddling videos of uh, naked people doing the most vile and unspeakable things and planting detestable fantasies into the minds of America's youth. Where are those demonic outposts today, my friends? Exactly. They are nowhere. They've gone the way of uh, phone booths and pagers and uh, actors like uh, C. Thomas Howe. (laughs) Why, friends? Why did Blockbuster collapse like the homosexual-loving Roman Empire once did? Because, friends, the prayer of a righteous man is effectual and accomplishes much. I personally took on the kingdom of darkness, known as Blockbuster, by leading an all-night prayer vigil. And that company toppled like Hillary Rotten Clinton's campaign when she ran screaming into oblivion with her demonic tail between her pants-suited legs. And, uh, friends, I'm happy to report that while I've been doing more important things and calling into this anti-God cast, I've been on my knees in the tear-stained oak floors of the sanctuary of the King James Bible-believing, preaching tabernacle. And, friends, there was another empire that I've recently taken down. That's right, friends. I call it the Empire of Cellulite has fallen down (laughs) upon itself. In the removal of Greg, I'm getting fatter by the minute Dutcher from this vile podcast. <laughs> oh, don't be fooled for one second, friends, that he's a, uh, what did they say? Oh, he's he's committing himself to other things. Friends, the only thing that fool's ever committed himself to is to take a perpetual seat at the table closest to his local all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> Oh, friends, I've prayed that fat fool right out of this podcast. Oh, my word. And I'm here to declare victory. But that's not all I'm doing today, friends. I'm here to put these other two infidels on notice. That's right. I see you there, Mr. Nathan Tinkerbell. (laughs) 
Oh, I don't care how many times you you grow your hair long and then cut it short again and then grow it long again and then cut it short again and and grow your facial hair looking like a demon-possessed woolly mammoth. And then when you shave it short again and grow it long again, just know you are the same vile, Satan-loving, worshipping fool you've always been no matter what facial hair you put on. And I still see you. That's right, Mr. Steve mm. Unregenerate Heartland. Uh, friends, you know, to protect the purity of God's kingdom, I have watchers spread all throughout our great nation. Uh, you could spot them, by the way, just by looking closely to see if they're wearing their proud Make America Great Again lapel pins. And you've seen how effective that's been. <laughs> anyway, friends, these watchers have told me that... Uh, mm. They've uh, seen this Mr. Heartland riding his devil's chariot, he likes to call a motorcycle, all over the East Coast. Right Friends, up here does tonight. surprise you one bit? <laughs> that this so-called pastor would rather be on his little tricycle than spending one quality hour in the King James Bible where he could read about Jesus' victory over the Democrat Party. <laughs> Think about it, friends. Does this does this Mr. Hartland look like he's modeling himself uh, after a faithful King James Bible preacher? Or an old motorcycle stuntman aptly named Evil Knievel? <laughs> That's right, friends. He's as evil as the day is long. Oh, I see you, Mr. Nathan Tinkerbell. And I see you there, Mr. Steve Unregenerate Hartland. It's kind of a little creepy there. I see there. you all right. And I want to give you a little lesson today. Why don't you learn the lesson? of Greg Dutcher's downfall. Why don't you go find your old friend, Greg Dutcher, lift up his sloppy Joe Stain t-shirt, and I guarantee you the stretch marks on that big belly, they form a roadmap. That's right, friends. I've had this confirmed. They form a roadmap that will lead all three of you to the same place, the burning lake. That's where you're headed, you fools. Friends listening, I appeal to you one last time. Don't listen to a single word of drivel coming out of the heresy dripping mouths of these imbeciles. But instead, take a trip down south to the King James Bible Tabernacle, where, as always, friends, you'll hear the sweet love of Jesus. Amen. Man, been so long that uh, Reverend King there had a lot of uh, venom to spew out at us. A lot of heavy words to say about Greg, too. So, uh, yeah, we'll... uh, we're just going to let that soak there for a second. Um, but before we get started into main content, which as you said, Steve, is our book review, want to make sure that we uh, talk about our sponsor. Real quick, we want to shout out to Mission Aware. And actually, this is a good plug for Mission Aware because um, I don't know about you, Steve, but uh, many times when I'm reading a book, particularly if it's a, a book that deals with a strong theological topic, I want to take notes to a certain extent. I want, I want something there that I can, you know, jot things down with, and you know, really remember that key point. Um, I, I know for a while when I was even studying the Bible, I would be jotting things down in the margins of my Bible and just kind of marking up my Bible like crazy. Made a mess out of it. Made a mess out of it, and then I'd go back and I'd, you know, reread a section and I'd want to jot another note, and I be out of room. Um, so plug for Mission Aware, they have great moleskin journals that you can pick up um, from their website, have you know lots of great 
re- reformed figures on there. So, you know, you could get uh, Moleskin Journal with Calvin uh, silhouette on the front of it, you know, and if you wanted to do Calvin's Institutes and go through that, you know, that would be a perfect thing to just kind of coordinate and cover and, you know, put right there, hey, this is my Calvin journal that I'm going to take all my do notes they also, in. I can't remember. I know they have Spurgeon t-shirt. I think they have yeah. Martin Luther. Do they have Calvin? I believe, yes, so t-shirts. You could buy your Calvin t-shirt. That's right. Calvin t-shirt, awesome, Calvin Moleskin, Calvin beer mug. Ooh, so yeah. you'd be you'd be right there ready to go. Um, but all sorts of, you know, different uh, journals that you can pick up. Again, Calvin, Spurgeon, Luther. Um, you can even get some that are custom made on there. And then, of course, our very own. These go to 11 moleskin journals are yeah. available as well. So if you're reading, um, you know, something crazy like Nietzsche or something like that and you want to remember where you are, you can pick up these, go to 11 and remember us as you're going through Nietzsche or Nietzsche. Um, so check out Mission Aware for great products and deals. And we are jumping into our list. Steve, this is our top 10 list. You've chosen 10 books that you're going to go through. I've chosen 10 books that I'm going to go through. And we've already decided that this is going to be a little bit of a longer one. This is actually a two-parter that we're going to release. Um, and I'm so glad you said that. I forgot that. I'm yeah. so glad. Yeah, so we good, can good, good. just take our time and really go through and explore why we enjoy these books and why we recommend them to other people. Uh, what makes them personal? To me, reading is very similar to movie watching or video game playing or any kind of entertainment. It's very – the books you like are the books you like for reasons and they have personal meaning and background into why you dive into them and why you appreciate them. And so, Steve, I'm going to let you go ahead and kick us off with your uh, with your first one. Now, for me, and you can um, you can address this if you'd like. For me, I don't have mine in like a particular Same top here. ten. These yeah. are just ten that I thought of. That you know what I, I think these ten are worth reading. So these aren't my you know. 10 is the absolute best or the absolute worst, and one is the absolute best, absolute worst. These are just the 10 that I pick that I really enjoy. Same here. Actually, my first one is one of my absolute best. It might be number one. Okay. It, it might be. But but the others are pretty much, oh, I like this one, I like that one, I like the other one. Yeah. And there's a whole lot more at home waiting for I like, I like, yes. I like, if we wouldn't do this again. Yes. But uh, here we go. My first pick. Probably if my house burns down and I can only grab one book, it's going to That's be this gonna one. That's going to be that one. And it is... An Encyclopedia Britannica version, their great books series, a version of Augustine's Confessions. Wow. This this also has City of God in the back of it. Okay. Uh, so that's really great too. But man, his Confessions, talk about a classic. So Augustine, yes. who is Augustine? Or some pronounce it Augustine, take your pick. I like Augustine. Um, so he was born around, uh, I think in the 300s, lived into the 400s, around 350 to 420 maybe, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and one of the amazing things about him is uh, he wrote such good theology, although it's kind of mixed, he wrote such good theology uh, for his day. Yes. He had very few predecessors that, uh, upon whose shoulders he could stand. He just alone figured out a whole lot of stuff from Scripture yes. and would write about it. But on the other hand, he, he's enough like a Roman Catholic in some places mm-hmm. that, that Rome claims him as one of right, their champions. Right. And he's enough like a Protestant in other places that Protestants claim him as their champion. Right. So he's a, he's a little bit of a mixed bag when yeah. you come to Rome versus 
uh, evangelical Protestants. Well, that's the beauty of, you know, before the Reformation, before the split in the church, and don't get me wrong, it was necessary. I'm not going to say it wasn't. You know, it was necessary that we had the split. But before the split, everybody claims everybody because there was no distinction. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, it was it was one church. It was, it was the, the Catholic church. church at the time, small c, universal church. And that's what, you know, that's what's so great about these early church fathers is that everybody claims them. It's pretty nice. Pretty nice. Hard to imagine that. So his confessions is really what uh, a good Baptist today would call his testimony. That's right. And his confessions is what more modern Christians they would call his story. Yes. Uh, so he's he's telling us his story, and uh, surprise, he starts off with uh, his younger life. He was a really reprobate, sinful yes. young man, and he goes into detail about that. Yes. Uh, and then uh, at a certain point, becomes a, a believer. He's converted. He's saved. He calls upon the name of Christ. Life changes dramatically, and he becomes the most zealous, Christ-loving, God-worshipping Christian you could imagine, and he writes about it. But the, the thing that makes Augustine stand out for me, beyond the fact that he had no one's shoulders upon whom to stand, um, is that the way he writes is beautiful. Mm, yes. And, of course, we're reading an English translation, but still... Uh, he writes with great finesse mm-hmm. and beauty. Uh, he constructs gorgeous sentences that are yet chock full of truth. And he's really, really warm-hearted as a Christ follower. Yes. And that comes out, just oozes out of him on every page. Yes. Like you read Augustine and say, man, I want to have one day in my life where I feel about Christ like Augustine felt about Christ yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's pretty amazing. So I've, I've got just a couple little portions here. I thought, well, I'll read this. Yeah, give the people absolutely. I'm going to read that and give the people a taste. Um, so on this particular page, he says, uh, My will the enemy held, and thence, by my will, had made a chain for me and bound me. For of a froward will was a lust made, and a lust served became custom and custom not resisted became necessity. Hmm. Hmm. So my will, a lust, a custom, a necessity. And you just read that and want, you want to close the book and ponder for a while. Wow, wow, where's that in my life? How's that fit? Yeah. And even that, it was a pretty simple sentence, but it's beautiful. Yes. The way he constructs stuff. It's almost, um, I, I taught this book in 11th grade when I taught. Um, you taught his confessions? I did. Did you Obviously, really? his confessions, yes. Oh, man. One of the things that, well, there were several things that I loved teaching about this book. One of them was, as you mentioned, it goes into his youth and just how much of a blatant sinner he was. Mm-hmm. And it's it was so great to be able to expose students and, you know, have them read through these things and then look at them and say, now you think you guys party hard and you think you're wild. I want you to read this guy uh-huh. and see the thing. And they, and they, they just, read him? They uh, read Confessions? They did. Yep, they awesome, read Confessions. Man. Yeah, that was one what of grade? Um, this was eleventh. So Imagine it was. If I was in eleventh grade, and they had me read that. It was we well, and that's the thing. Like we did a uh, Christian literature class, and so we read this together in class and went over. You know, okay, so what were you confused on? Because some of the language, mm-hmm. it is a little Shakespearean at yes, some point. That's is. what you're talking yeah, about. Right. That that beauty and that, that poetry that sublime. comes through. Yeah. Um, and so there were some moments where it's like, well, well, what's he saying here? And we would go through and work some of those things out. And talk about those things, you know, and it was just, but it was such a joy to be able to say, 
you know, you guys look at your life now and I know you feel like you're in a desperate and lost position, but look at his life, Mm -hmm. you know, look at Augustine and look at the things. And this is a book that he's writing on hindsight and just marveling at how much even then God's grace was on his life, even though he didn't know it, even though he didn't want it, even though he rejected it, looking back on it as a believer, he saw it. And um, that was just such a great thing to be able to look at them and point that out to them and Man, talk to them I mean, about. in a hopefully righteous kind of way, I envy you. <laughs> you got to teach this to 11th graders. I mean, I spent one year, as you know, teaching a, a classical Christian school nearby yep. and taught the senior class apologetics five days a week for the whole school year. And that was such a rich and rewarding yeah. thing to do, man. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I can't imagine teaching this. It was, it was, it was very exciting. And we used, um, we used a more, even more modern translation of it that, um, my wife's, um, aunt works for a publishing company. That publishing company helped to update it and make it a little more accessible. And so it was really great to, to just be able to sit there and explore a lot of those themes with them and just explore Augustine's life with them up to his conversion. It was only up to his conversion that we read. We didn't read the whole, because I believe there are, um, aren't there something like 66 sections? Yeah. 66 sections or something like that. 22. Let's go down near the end to see. But I mean, it's, so we read, um, the, the sections we read were basically from his birth up to his conversion. Um, and that's the sec- that's that section that we read. Um, 38. 38. 38. Okay. Right. So not quite 66. I'm thinking of the Bible. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, some, some would compare the two. I mean, come on, let's be real. Um, but it was just, it was great. And even being, being able to get them to start thinking in terms of when he talks about the brilliance of being sinful as an infant. You know, and it's like getting them to think of and understand that there would only have ever been one infant who was ever not sinful. That even infants are sinful because the uh, the sin nature that was a nature that inclines you to sin. Yeah, so I'm I'm so glad you picked that one, and that one you said was kind of an encyclopedic. Um, yeah, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica Great Books Collection, okay. which I want to comment on for a moment. Yeah, so please. Maybe not all our hearers are familiar with the Great Book series, but uh, largely under the uh, oversight of a great professor and scholar named Mortimer Adler, whom I just happened to meet in a Chicago airport one day mm-hmm. and uh, introduced myself to him and sat down beside him. And once we sat down, we were introduced, and he had said to me, yes, I am Mortimer Adler. I found myself speechless. Like, That's what exciting. do you say to Mortimer Adler, man? <laughs> Just, oh, my word. But anyway, I should have taken a selfie, but that was before there were cameras in our cell phones. <laughs> so, um, so he and others decided, you know, we need to figure out of all the books that have been written, and they're, they're working with Western books right, only. Right. Uh, all the Western books written, what are the great books that a serious reader ought to read? Mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting that everyone who's hearing this podcast ought to run out and buy Augustine's Confessions because right. maybe, you know, it's not for you. But right. uh, on the other hand, man... Uh, anyway, so they they made this massive list of books. These are the books. If you want to be a really educated Westerner, you've got to be conversant in these books. Mm-hmm. So I I decided long ago. I read Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. Mm-hmm. That's a great work. I've read that. Is a great yeah, book. You're really right. Helpful. I've read that one. And basically, the answer is slowly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but also. Uh, uh, so, so they made this list, and not too many Christian books made it onto their list, mm-hmm. but this one did. Yeah. 
So even even those folks, not evangelicals, they recognize this is a great piece of Western literature. But if we had to construct a Christian great books list, mm-hmm. what would it be? You know, I asked myself, what would it be? This would certainly be. Oh, absolutely. List. So, you know, I'm, I'm a reader. I love reading. To me, this is like don't leave earth without having read Augustine's Confessions. I totally agree. Totally agree. Thank you so much, Steve. That's, little, that's excellent. Yes, so please. Here's a couple more lines. This is in section 20, and then I'm going to jump to 22. He says, For when I seek thee, my God, I seek a happy life. And this is the happy life, to rejoice to thee, of thee, for thee. This is it. And there is no other. Mm. Oh, so, so cool. good. Wow. Yeah. Again, you just want to close it and say, hmm, Selah, I need to ponder that for a while. Yes. This is a happy life. He's and, right. And that was one of the great things about that is just taking the time to go through even, you know, with a group of students and, and pause at moments like that yes. and say, think about this, you know, take some time tonight and, and write a little bit about this. What does this look like in your life? How do you do this? How do we do this in today? How do we do this with all as Americans, with all the distractions that we have? How do we balance that out and say, you know what, in Christ, he is all I need. There is nothing else. And how do we, how do we, you know, get to that point? Yeah. So, yeah, and, that's and we great... Americans need that. Huh? Like, what's the good life in America? Yeah, yeah. And what's the good life to Augustine? To Augustine, it is to know him, mm-hmm. to seek him. That's the happy life. So, great stuff. I believe it's your turn. So, the, the first one that I have um, is I, one of the first ones that came to my mind because this is one that I've read um, every year for about the past six or seven years wow now. i mean you like this this is, this is another one that i taught C- Martin, c.s lewis said the test of a, uh, whether a book is a good book is would you read it a second time and it's interesting You're that you number uh, six man it's interesting that you said c.s lewis because this is c.s lewis mere christianity <laughs> oh yeah classic so mere christianity is one that i started teaching same class that i did augustine's confessions in and it's just a book that i feel does such an amazing job at uh, a defense of the Christian faith, apologetics. One that I never get tired of. He goes from the beginning talking about uh, God's, or even before that, talking about the general condition of uh, who we are as people. So this idea of evolution or a God or a cre- not even a God, a creator, something with intelligence behind the universe and breaks it down from the beginning. Why? Why can't evolution be true? Well, because there's too much order there's too much consistency in the universe for it to randomly have generated and occurred. Just logical, broken down arguments and works you all the way into the idea of a creator. That creator can only be one of a few gods that are out there. Uh, why is it then the God of Christianity? Why is Christianity right? And just works you through each individual process and step of logic and has uh, the wonderful defense in there of Jesus Christ as Lord, that Lord liar lunatic mm. argument where he just takes you through and and works out, you know, a lot of people are not willing to flat out reject 
who Christ says he is. I think he uses the word nonsense. He says you can't yes. have this nonsense that Christ was a great man and a wonderful moral teacher, yes. but he wasn't Lord. Right. Because he said he's Lord. So right. he's not a great man if he right. said he's Lord and he isn't. Right. He's he's a nonsense. liar. He's a liar yes. at that point, you know. Uh, and then the idea of, well, maybe he was crazy. But then you look and you read the things that he said and you read how he responds to the Pharisees. Mm. There's so much wisdom and so much consistency and logic in the what he says and how he responds to them that it's not possible that he just thought he was one, he was the son of God and actually wasn't. So that brings you back to him being a liar again. Yeah. Um, but, and so yeah. right. So the end conclusion is you either um, you either dismiss him as a crazy person, you either reject him as being a liar condemned to hell, or you embrace him as Lord and Savior. And it's just such a well put together, brilliant argument that is in there. Um, you know, uh, and so. For me, it's just one that I've, like I said, I've read um, every year uh, since for the past six years and have just um, grow more and more in terms of things that I see in it and uh, arguments that I'm able to put forth to people and things that I'm able to explain to them and help them understand whether believers or unbelievers and just such sound logic in that book and in that argument. Yeah, unlike Augustine's Confessions, I would say C.S. Lewis's uh, a lot of his books, but this one in particular, is one that most hearers should run out and buy and read. Mere Agreed. Christianity is just – if we write a, a contemporary Christian classics list or if we ask yes. which books from the last century are likely to survive, yes. that's high on the list. Yes, that's absolutely. absolutely. That's up there with J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Yep. Two, two great books. Yep. So, Just imagine what fits C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien gave their colleagues – at the universities yes. because they were Christians. Yes. I remember reading once where Tolkien was uh, put up for some position mm-hmm. and s- several other professors were discussing and said, well, we can't have him in that position. He's a Christian. Mm. Yep. Same with Lewis. Yep. And it's, it's amazing because we think of, you know, the idea that, you know, we are, um, we're persecuted today in our workplaces for being Christians, you know, but it's been going on. since the beginning of time and it will continue to go on. But I love that there was at least, at least from things that we read and see, there's no big fuss or stink. They just went on doing the thing that they did and Mm. doing the thing that they loved. Good for them. Although I do think the heat's been turned up a little, especially politically in the U S right now. Like there was off topic, but there was a recent, uh, a hearing, a guy was being, uh, looked at for a a government position. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump had appointed him potentially to that position. And uh, he was at a hearing, and Bernie Sanders, maybe you saw this, Bernie I Sanders see that, ripped yeah. into him for his faith. And at the end, Bernie Sanders wound up with a statement, something like, I don't think this man is fit to serve. Right. Which is interesting because Article something or other of our Constitution says religion shall not be a test for whether somebody can serve. Right. But Bernie Sanders, right. this man can't serve. He's a Christian. Right. Well, and that's what we're finding more and more is the idea that, you know, people are going to be, you know, looking more closely and, you know, you, you look at it and it's funny because a lot of people ask my opinion on it and at the end of the day, I'm sad it's happening, but it's not surprising. Yes. I mean, you know, this is, this is the world that Christ told us we live in and these are the things he told us we would expect to, to happen. We are just coming into, we are coming as Americans into a new shade of it that we've never seen before. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? So It hasn't been this way. Yep. Um, but yeah, Mere Christianity, uh, definitely, if you have not, check it out. Um, to me, it is, like I said, just one of my favorites. Steve, you're next. 
Yeah, next, oddly enough, uh, is also in the Great Book series. This is from the Loeb Classical Library. And uh, I love this writer. He was... uh, he, he lived in the century before Christ was born and was a Roman uh, government official and orator. He's mm-hmm. best known, perhaps, as an orator. And his name is Cicero. Nice. I have an Italian friend, Reno Ulfo, who lives in Caltanissetta in Sicily. And he pronounces it Cicero, which I always thought was pretty oh, cool. Oh, fascinating. So Cicero or Cicero, uh, whichever way. I'm going to go with Cicero. Uh, but I, I've read a lot of Cicero, and I really love him. And again... Part of it is the beauty and the sublimity of it all. Yeah. The guy just has a way with words. He was brilliant and could think and speak and write. But this is volume uh, 20 of Loeb Classical Library, and it's Cicero's three works, Old Age. See why I read that? Yeah. Uh, friendship. And then the other one is Divination, which is a little weird, Divining the Will of the God. Okay. Uh, yeah. But but the one on old age is really fascinating. I don't agree with every part of it, but a lot of parts of it are really helpful. And then the one on friendship, I thought was pretty amazing. And I've read and reread them, like you reading C.S. Lewis. Yeah. I'm reading Cicero a bunch of times. So, uh, my there was one I, piece I wanted to read right here, and now I lost it. <laughs> um, now tell me, do you feel uh, as you're looking through that? Do you feel that? Um, the the uh, translators have done a good job at not just preserving it, but translating it into English so that its readability is accessible to people. You know, I wouldn't be one to comment on that. I've read other classical works where they were originally written in Greek, and you have the Greek on the left-hand side mm-hmm. and then English on the right-hand side. And I can look at the Greek and figure out, did they do a good job? Mm-hmm. This is Latin. And, you know, about the extent of my Latin is e pluribus unum. Did right, I say that right? right? You did. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, so I don't know. But then again, the guys who translated for this series were great right. scholars, right? So here's a little piece. He says, in the first place, this is on friendship, mm-hmm. de emesita. Uh, in the first place, pains must be taken that, if possible, no discord should arise between friends. Mm. Today we say, try to get along with your friends. Yeah. He says, pains must be taken that no discord should arise. I That's, like that. Try and try and keep peace with your friends, man. Sounds a little like Paul there too. Have you know, live at try to live at peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. Now you know what? This is weird. You just gave me goosebumps. You really did. A lot of times when I've been reading Cicero, I've thought, I wonder if Paul read this because mm. he sounds like Paul. Yeah. So I did a little research on that, and some people actually do think, yes, Paul had read Cicero. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of Paul's style is a bit, a bit, a little bit like Cicero's style, mm-hmm. but also there's there's something written somewhere that said Paul's grandfather might have been schooled where Cicero was schooled, or something mm-hmm. like that. So there might be a connection. I don't know. Sure. But often I've thought, man, this is Pauline. Yeah. This is like Paul. This is the way Paul writes. Like for example. Paul is he writes beautifully and with this kind of clever sublimity in the book of Philemon. Mm-hmm. What a book, man. The mm. way he masterfully puts that together yeah. and has Philemon eating out of his hand. He's got to do what Paul says by the end of the little epistle. It's very uh Cicero like. So this one on uh friendship has many many good pieces in it. The one on old age you don't need yet. <laughs> But uh, I've I've really found a lot of help out of this. I'm 63 next month. And um, so here he was. He was more like 80-something, had been this great government official, senator, whatever he was. 
and now he's been sidelined and marginalized because he's old. Mm. He's writing to another friend who's also old, and they're commenting on, uh, what do we do now? This is really awful. We don't matter anymore. And they turn to farming, hmm. to agriculture. Okay. Not that they literally themselves do the farming. They right. have servants, but they have farms, and they have grape vines and whatever, and, and they find a lot of their joy in their farming yeah. and the stuff that's growing out of their land. Interesting. That is, yeah, that's fantastic. I think it speaks too to you know the idea. It, I find it interesting because retirement is never talked about in the Bible. Yeah. You know, it's the the assumption is you are going to keep on doing something in some capacity forever. Yes. You know, and so there there's the the idea that in our American culture and American sensibilities, we've come up with this thought and idea once you reach a certain age you know you're you're done you're just kind of waiting for death to you know knock at the door and and take you away where you know in in ancient cultures ancient societies that wasn't the case you were there was always something for you to do something you had to do yeah 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 incidentally personal note I, i have no plans and no desires for retirement if my brain will stay clear and if the people at Cornerstone will put up with me, mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to be there a long time yeah. and maybe one day die while I'm preaching and my chin hits the pulpit on the way down or something. There you go. Here's a couple little quotes from Cicero on old age. He says, I love this, but the crowning glory of old age is influence. Mm. Oh, I like that. Mm. See, I, I really have this sense, whether it's right or wrong, and I, I don't think I mean this in any arrogant way, but... I think I'm more useful now than I've ever been. Mm. I think I have just because of the experience I've had, yeah. more, of my, more of my own stupid rough edges have been knocked off, ground off, yeah. worked off. Uh, but also just due to the accumulation of experience, uh, I'm more I'm, I'm able to help people more yeah. than I've ever been able to and to influence people. So I like this, that the uh, crowning glory of old age is influence. I want to spend the rest of my days influencing people yeah. for Christ yeah. Righteousness. He also says, um, uh, when the preceding part of life has been nobly spent, then old age gathers the fruits of influence at the last. Hmm. So you got to spend your earlier days nobly. Yeah. Doing noble things. Yep. Growing in your understanding of things. Growing as an individual walking before Christ in our case. Yeah. Um, but there's fruit that you don't bear till you're older. Yeah. I'm bearing that fruit now and loving it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so good too. You know, again, we take so much for granted with, um, older people. I remember my mother was a nurse and so, um, she would work in different type of nursing fields. And I remember there was a time where she worked in a nursing home for a number of years and she would bring us children in with her. And one of my favorite things to do was to go in with my mom on a Saturday or a Sunday and visit the older people and just talk to them and find out what their stories were like and where, you know, where That's they came fun. from. And, talking. Yeah, because they, they are so excited to have someone to share their life with. Many of them in those situations just don't have people to share their life with anymore. So they get so excited to have younger people share their life and they're, and they're excited to see younger people coming in. You know, they, they get a sense of feeling younger and energized when they see the excitement and, you know, and I would just encourage listeners, if you get an opportunity, take your young children into nursing homes 
and let them visit old people. Cool. Let them get to know them. Let them get to know their stories and let the older people just love on them and get that experience. There is so much joy in that. Or if you're a grandparent, get around yeah. your grandchildren as yeah, much absolutely. as you can. I, I love the way my kids want their children to be around Debbie and me mm. a lot. And it's obvious. Yeah. So we take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. Man, it, it's, oh, it's a wonderful thing. That's exciting. That's very exciting. Good for you. I think you're on. So my second one that I'm going to um, recommend here is a nonfiction series, um, Harry Potter. So the Harry Potter series, there are seven books in that series. Um, Just a fantastic work. I will stack that up against any other... Um, you know, fiction work written throughout all of time and history, including would you really? I would. See, I haven't read them. I'm not I would. against them or anything, yep. but I haven't read them. I would, including um, including Shakespeare's work. You know, and that's not Whoa. to that's not again not to take away from Shakespeare, but I think we need to get a little beyond the point where we're like, oh, Shakespeare was the greatest of all time. Shakespeare was fantastic, and he wrote things so well for the time that he was in. Mm-hmm. Can we kind of move beyond that and say we have writers who are doing that today, you know? And, and there's more English J- language to yes, deal with. Yes, exactly. And so J.K. Rowling is just masterful with the way she writes in seven long books. Is she she tells she is. Yep, right, right. yep. So you know, I mean, we'll still give it to the British. They still know how to write. Oh, I like the British. So um, you know, but. But she just she tells this story so wonderfully, and whether you're a Christian or not, you can appreciate what's being written there. The whole underlying theme of the books are that this sacrifice is made, and the sacrifice is what actually saved Harry um, at the beginning of this series. And so this theme of love and choosing to make a sacrifice on someone else's behalf is just running so strong throughout this entire series and she works her way through to the end and ties everything up so richly and beautifully she creates this world within our world that you can see and experience and it doesn't feel distant and unrelated um i think sometimes when reading something like J.R. tolkien the lord of the rings it's it's fantasy and so it does feel separated but she does a great job of bringing our world and this wizarding world together so that you can see how the two relate and how um all of these things are going on and so for me it's just it is uh, one of my absolute favorite series to read, and I highly recommend it to anyone out there um, if you have the time to sit down and read through it. How many volumes did you say? Seven. So seven. they get uh, and pretty the series much. Series is closed at seven. It's closed at seven. Hmm. Yep. So it gets. You know, the first one starts off. It's a little shorter. The second one gets a little longer. Third one's a little longer. Fourth one gets a lot longer. Really? Then you have the fifth one, which is um, – I don't know if it's the longest, but it's if it's not the longest, it's the second longest out of the series. Sixth one's a little shorter than the fifth one, and then the seventh one um, I think is, like I said, either the first or the second longest out of the series and just done so well. It's – you know, there's school years that he's – um, he's in, and of course, because it's British, it's the British kind of school system that you're you're working from. So years one through seven, um, and just again does a beautiful job at telling a story, at weaving in elements of humor, you know, getting in there and seeing just such 
elements that are funny and you can, uh, as a teacher, I kind of cringe sometimes at the things that the students say, but at the same time, I can see my students saying and doing <laughs> some of these things. So, um, you know, the humor and the realism that's brought into the characters is very vivid and real and alive. Interesting. Now, here's how far removed I am from knowing much about Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Have they made a movie? Yes. So all seven movies are um, all seven. All seven are done and completed. Wow. Um, Somebody and, got astronomically wealthy. Oh this, yes, yes, she did. Um, and then they, she actually she wrote a book. Well, she wrote a book for the books. If that makes sense. So there's all these things going on. It's this whole entire world. And so within the world, you have your own wizarding authors and things like that. And so there's this book called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And so now there's been a spinoff movie of that book that was written from the spinoff of the book. And so, yeah, she's she's just making money hand over fist from this stuff. Um, But the initial seven books that are in there – you can read those one to seven and you get that whole complete rich story of what's going on just in books one to seven. You don't need to go out into other pieces unless you want to explore further into the universe. Now I've been under the impression that they were maybe aimed at like junior high or high school or something. Uh, but they are not apparently the, the interesting thing is it's possible that the start of them was when you read books one and two, you can tell that the start of the books and the audience might have been a little younger. However, there's enough humor in there to engage someone older. And then as it progresses, um, I would say that um, that those were, if not written for adults, adults can still appreciate mm-hmm. them. I, again, going back to C.S. Lewis, I think it's C.S. Lewis that says, you know, a children's book um, that can entertain both children and adults is a worthwhile a children's book. book to read. So Harry Potter? Yeah. Probably he would have approved. I I think so. I I agree. I think he. You know. I think if he and Tolkien were here today, they would have. They would have very much enjoyed the this series. Very cool. Yep. Do we have time for another? Absolutely. Let's keep going. All right. So I'm going back to the Christian Great Book series. Sorry, I'm stuck on that. Hey. I, I have two more entries for it. So here's one. Nice. This is Calvin's Institutes of mm. the Christian Religion. It's a two volume version. The one edited by, if you're going to buy one, and, and most of you probably shouldn't buy one, uh, you have to be a serious reader of serious Christian literature, and you have to want to really spend some time. You can get through, I don't know what it is, 1,200 pages or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying everybody ought to buy this, but this is certainly high up on the list of Christian great books. In fact, this is from what is called the Library of Christian Classics. Mm. So Ford Lewis Battle. Battles is the editor of this version, or the translator, rather, of this version. That's the version to have, by the way. There are others. Get the Ford Lewis Battles one if you're going to buy one. But what's so great about Calvin? And by the way, I don't like being called a Calvinist. I like being called a Christian. Yes. I don't want to be named after any other man. Yep. I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. Ask me if I'm a Calvinist, and I'll say, well, I'm Reformed. Right. Reformed in my theology, all right? Um, and even then, I sometimes like to say, well, I'm sort of Reformed. It depends on who you're pointing at. Right. Am I like him or am I like him? Right. No, I'm not like him. And I'm not that kind of Reformed. There's, but anyway. There are some things that I like that Calvin did and some things that I don't. <laughs> yeah, like the way he treated Baptists. That's right. right? It's pretty bad stuff. And some confusion, in my view, over... Uh, Church of government, right. separation of the two. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to disagree with him on some stuff. But if you want, to, if you want one of the great books, whether you agree with him on everything or not, 
Calvin's Institutes. Mm. Now, another thing about Calvin that's amazing is he's in the 1500s. So Wayne Grudem's systematic theology had not been written yet. Uh, <laughs> Robert Louis Dabney's systematic theology had not been written yet. Charles Hodges' systematic theology had not been written yet. All the ones we take for granted, there could be a longer list. Robert Raymond's systematic theology, not written yet. Nobody's systematic theology had been written yet. Yep. He had nobody's shoulders upon which to stand. Now, he obviously read a lot of the uh, church fathers, mm -hmm. and he'll quote them and so on. Yep. But none of them had really systematized the teaching of the Bible on various subjects. And where they sort of do, they're often not faithful. And he discerns that, yeah. and, and he quotes them when they're good. Uh, but he, he was uh, very fond of Augustine, mm -hmm. so he's very familiar with Augustine's confessions. Mm -hmm. And maybe he stood on Augustine's shoulders more than anybody else. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, he was very familiar with. Aquinas mm. is not much help when you want biblical theology. Yeah. You know, philosophy, maybe. Yeah. Biblical theology, no. So Calvin, virtually on his own, like apparently sitting alone with his Bible, came up with this amazing book, the first really big systematic theology ever written for the Christian church. And it's incredible how good it is. Mm. Not to mention the fact that, much like Augustine, though maybe not quite to the Augustine degree, uh, Calvin's writing is sublime mm -hmm. and beautiful. Yes. It really is beautiful. And, of yes. course, I know I'm reading an English translation, but a lot of the beauty comes through. Um, and it's not only beautiful, but uh, like Augustine, it's also very warm-hearted and uh, pastoral. Mm -hmm. Usually systematic theologies are really crusty and dry. Right. Right. And they're not at all pastoral. They're information dumps. Yes. Um, Wayne Grudem does better than that, by the way. His is a little more heartwarming and a little more applicable. But Calvin writes, like, from his heart to your heart while he's doing theology with beauty. Mm. I just mm, that's like, so good. I like that. Yeah. So I've read and reread different portions of this. I can open any page and I have things underlined. Uh, yeah. you know, what, what should I read for the hearer to read a little piece? I have no idea. Well, here he says, no, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without great admiration. Um, so he, he does say there are some great writers before me and I can read them with great admiration, right. but they weren't anything like him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's amazing too, because you know, we, we look at writers, from ancient history and we affirm much of what they said, but we also need to remember much of what they said they were coming up with from scratch. Yes. You know, we're not, we're not talking about the Bible here, people where this is, we can trust that this is inspired God's inspired word and it's there. And this is God giving it to us. Many of these systematic theologies that we have, many of these things we have from these ancient teachers these are things that they are they are inferring, they are pulling on their own from what they see and what they've experienced in their time. And so uh, going back to what you said, Steve, about not wanting to be called a Calvinist, while it's so great to be able to fall back on someone like Calvin, why do we fall back on someone like Calvin mm -hmm. who had so little experience in the terms of the theology that was being pulled from at the time, you know, one of those reasons is I think, well, we can see because of the things that have come after him, because of the things that came before him, these things are consistent with scripture. Yes. These things align with scripture. These things are in agreement with scripture. But I think, um, as, as we pointed out when we talked about, um, creeds, many people will hold up 
the systematic theology of Calvin and hold up their Bible side by side and say, this is the truth. Calvin would strongly object to that. Yeah. And, and I think that's one thing we need to remember is, you know, as we are reading these, we take them and we appreciate what they are and what has been said and done with them. But we also take them as books. We take them no more and no Human less. authors. Yes. Books. Yes. Let me read you the opening, the opening yes. sentence. This is book one, titled The Knowledge of God, the Creator, chapter one. He says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Interesting. Hmm. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So he's going to write about knowing God and knowing ourselves. What do we know about ourselves? He writes a couple of pages later. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. Mm. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. Mm. We cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. So he's saying, uh, you, know, you want to know God, and you want to know, your, and you can't know God without knowing yourself, and how much you need God. Right. Anyway, it's beautiful. Yeah. No, it is, and that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm glad that so far we've been jumping back and forth. We haven't yeah. our t- our top tens haven't become uh, merged yet. So we'll find out if that continues to uh, <laughs> if that continues to stay true. Well, after those, I, I divert greatly. But anyway. Um, so on mine, I mean, I can honestly say that at least for the ones that I've chosen, I don't have anything older than I would say, uh, two or 300 years old on here. Um, and most of them are actually within this, uh, within the last, uh, century. Um, so let me go ahead and continue. And I'm going to start with a more modern one here on this next one. Uh, the reason for God, Tim Keller, you know what? I almost put that on my Did list. you? We almost had a table. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <clears throat> Managed to avoid it. To me, um, where C.S. Lewis does a great job at generally defining uh, Christianity. If I can make the analogy, when we talked about creeds, I would say that um, C.S. Lewis is the Apostles' Creed takes things very general, very basic, and puts them into Christianity. Uh, Tim Keller goes deeper than that. and He's the Westminster Confession. He's the Westminster Confession, (laughs) yes, Um, where he just goes so deep. And he brings it, uh, and I would say this is the positive for Tim Keller. He doesn't leave it in the past. He brings it into the relevant nature of where we are here and now. He really does. He's a master. (laughs) And so... For me, um, that book, when when someone is looking at a defense for the faith for where we are right now, 2017, it is still a relevant, culturally relevant book where you can engage someone on that level uh, and show them clearly, uh, logically, where Scripture is supreme, where Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And so for me, that... Um, you know that's that's the next one on my list that um, deserves the nod and and the credit 
um, there. And Tim Keller has so many other amazing books as well. Yes, um, and he'll probably write more amazing. Yes, books. now that he's uh, he's quote unquote retiring. Yes, you know his his nickname is Yoda. Yes, he's, yes. he's the Yoda of he's the reformed the Christian yes. movement. The yes. guy's just smart. Yes, just scary, brilliant, smart. Is it in this book or is it one of his others? Uh, I think it's in this one. He he answers objections, current objections to the Christian faith. And one of them is, why would a God of love allow all this suffering? Yes. So he addresses suffering. Yes. And uh, one of his little arguments in there is, just because you can't see a reason, can't see why would a God allow this? What's mm-hmm. the possible reason? Just because you can't see a reason doesn't mean there isn't one. Yes. Um, and then he, he talks about a little bug called a noceum yes and they're actual they're actually there's a little they're bug there, called yeah. noceum they're not in this state but they're in i don't know what wisconsin or right, nebraska or right. somewhere so uh you know you go in your tent at night and and your wife says are there any bugs in there and you say well i can't see any That's but it doesn't right. mean there aren't any there are no right. you can't see the things they're so little so keller says uh your suffering and the reasons for your suffering might be just like a noceum you can't mm. see the reason but that doesn't mean there isn't a good one so he's, he's arguing against objections. Good stuff. One of the ones to kind of um, piggyback off this, and um, I wish I wish this person did a lot more um, writing on apologetics, but he does a phenomenal job with actually engaging in it. Is Ravi Zacharias? Oh man, and he has phenomenal. He has phenomenal books out there um, to read, and um, just one one of the ones that I. Um, not on my list, so this is kind of a bonus one for our listeners out there. But um, he wrote a book called The Grand Weaver um, and just shows uh, through uh, – he, he said as he was walking in a country and watching this person weave a tapestry. And so the analogy of you know just because you know, you're at this point doesn't there, – there's a connection point where everything will come together and God will bring everything together. But uh, one of the things that Ravi Zacharias talks about with suffering is the problem isn't that Christians need to come up with an answer for suffering. The problem is that every system of faith yes. has to come up with yes. an answer for suffering. Everybody on the planet has That's to come right. up with an explanation of suffering. And so even if I can't come up with one as a Christian of why this is going on or I don't know why this is going on, the Buddhist has to come up with a reason. The Hindu, the Muslim, even the, the atheist, atheist yes. because the atheist problem with suffering is why should we care? Right? Who cares? Right? It's just a dark, cold universe, and you know we're headed for doom and, yes. and annihilation. So who cares? And and for the atheist too, the one who claims to be a man of science, there has to be a logical reason for it because mm. if there isn't, then their whole system of theology breaks down. Because there sure is suffering. That's right. Yes. Yep. That's the reason for it. Yep. So. I've never read anything by Ravi Zacharias. I've listened to him, and I yes. love him. I love the way he yes. uh, deals with people mm-hmm. so, so warmly, that convincingly. Is he a good read? He is, yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed the things that he does. He does a lot more with, I would say, these, these parables and storytellings in his writings than he does with actual uh, fact-based things. Mm-hmm. But the storytelling that he does is phenomenal. He, you know, he has his whole series about... Uh, Jesus has a conversation with, you name it, Oscar Wilde, Hitler, Buddha, um, you know, so he has these conversations where Jesus and Buddha sit down and talk, Hmm. Um, these conversations, you know, so he has all of these different 
um, books in that series. He has a lot of different um, things like The Grand Weaver where he's telling parallel stories to illustrate truths that he's trying to bring out. And so in that sense, his, the reading is fantastic, but it's different because you're not going to get like a Tim Keller where you're getting these straight logical yes. teachings that are coming at you and you know you need to sit there and be able to process the the logic behind it and really think about it and even trying to incorporate it into your own um, way that you would argue and defend with someone. The fact that he uses these stories a lot is absolutely okay with me because I'm thinking – I can remember another teacher in history who used a lot of yes. stories. Yes, His name was Jesus. That's right. He's a master teacher, the master teacher. Using stories a lot must be okay. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend um, things that you could get your hands on. And, of course, he does have, he does have other books that will um, talk about certain things. He did, I think it was The End of Reason, where he's battling the new atheists that are out there and you know, their, their fight against Christianity. And just in my opinion, in a very short book destroys and dismantles all the issues and problems that they bring up and object to Christianity. And so, yeah, his his stuff is definitely worth reading when you can get a hold of it. Awesome. But that was springboarded off of Tim Keller's reason for God. Yes. Reason for God. Great book. So check it out. And a lot of our readers our hearers rather ought to go out and buy that book. Yes. Yes. It is. It is one of the ones actually I read that one. Now I do not read this one every year. So, and I've only read it um, once and I read that one before I read mere Christianity. So for me, that was actually kind of the springboard to getting into the apologetics and the defense for the faith stuff. When I taught uh, the senior class apologetics for a year at this mm-hmm. classical Christian school near here, of course, there were a lot of books I used to help mm-hmm. me put together my lectures for the year. I, I just did it all from scratch. I had yep. nobody's curriculum, nothing. Um, but I really used – I had already read Tim Keller's Reason for God, but mm-hmm. then I really used it a lot in uh, constructing things yeah. for my class. yeah. Fantastic. I tried to give my students an appreciation for Keller too. Yes, showed them pictures of him, told them you know he's Yoda. He looks a little like Yoda too. <laughs> he does. I think that's part of why he gets named that. Oh, uh, that's right. great. Is there time for more? Yeah. So uh, what I figured is during this first half we'll go through our first five and then we'll um, you know we'll we'll do the next uh, next ten your five my five uh, for next week. So um, take us away. You got uh, two more. My my next is also I'm sorry I'm I'm boring I'm stuck in a rut here. My next one is also on the Christian great list mm-hmm. read. Well, Cicero wasn't. He's on, he's go, a great yeah. book, but he wasn't a Christian great book. That's right. Um, but uh, it's John Bunyan's Pilgrim's oh, Progress. Yes. I mean, it's a classic, right? You got to admit it's an absolute absolute all time classic. So John Bunyan was a, uh, a let's call him a late Puritan, mm-hmm. or he was. Uh, he was part of that group that began in the 1500s and then got big in the 1600s and 1700s yep. and became Reformed Christianity. Um, but Bunyan tells the story of this poor pilgrim uh, who starts his life off unconverted, then becomes converted and winds up in the celestial city in mm-hmm. heaven and all the trials and tribulations he's faced with on the way there. You might you might need to know Bunyan was actually imprisoned for preaching the gospel sometimes, yep. imprisoned for his faith. Uh, so he writes about the kind of persecution that Christians might run into. Uh, but great read, even great read to read to your children. You're, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting a little bit older. 
Uh, I know some Christian schools have plays and they act yes. like Pilgrim's Progress. It's that much revered. But I have one complaint with Pilgrim's Progress. Like, how it. dare I? Who am I? Well, it, maybe it'll help to mention that the great uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great pastor in London who died, incidentally, January 31, 1892, if you want to place him. Uh, Spurgeon had this complaint. And he's the first one that made me think, yeah, you're right. Bunyan is messed up right there. And, and what Spurgeon said is Bunyan waited. And Spurgeon could probably recite the whole book from memory, literally, because uh-huh. he had a near or an actual photographic memory. And he had read Bunyan in his youth and reread it and reread it and reread it. He loved Bunyan. Right. But he said Bunyan kept Pilgrim's burden on his back too long. Mm. And what he meant by that is, uh, you don't have to work and work and work and work and try to get yourself to a right place for salvation. You just believe, man. Yes. Just, he, he should have believed and the burden came off, like page three. Yes. Uh, and then the rest of it's going to be his Christian life and the struggles. But he has him go through this long process of trying to believe on Christ and trying to get this burden off his back, the burden being his sins. Mm. And and I agree. He takes way too long and it makes it seem like there's some enormous process you got to go through. Mm. Yeah. So, Keep that in mind when you read Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm waiting for someone to um, make a really good film adaptation of that movie because there is so much there that I feel like, so, you know, somebody could do something with and really. I mean, there there are film adaptations to yes, this. I've seen some, things, um, but, but nothing great. No, yeah, I mean, it's you know, I think there's one cartoon film adaptation which is you know okay, and then. Uh, there's a couple live action things which are not okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I want somebody to do something really good because there is so much here and it is such a great journey and such an exciting adventure to go with Pilgrim on, um, on this adventure. So, Yeah. Another one that uh, a lot of our hearers should probably read. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Really good classic. Yeah. It. Yep. And I, you know, for those out there, I remember um, – this is one that um, I read when I was in second grade with my classmates. No, so my second teacher grade. You guys read that? Yeah, my teacher read this one. Um, you know, took us through this one. Um, See, I to went to public school. We couldn't so. read by second grade. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe we could, but we couldn't have read Bunyan. I'm sure. Uh, but but you know, it's 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 one that if you go through with your children, you could you know they're they're going to appreciate it mm-hmm. at that age level. A lot yeah, of the we things in it, and yeah. yeah. So. You know, definitely one that you could go through as parents and pick out all the nuances and your children will appreciate for the story and the adventure. Pretty cool. Only a few so. things you'll have to explain. Right. Yep. Or go by quickly or something. Yep. All right. So. You're up to bat. Awesome. All right. So my next one I'm going to go to is going to be another um, C.S. Lewis book, uh, The Great Divorce. Oh, yeah. I love this book. This book has such controversy to it, and that's part of the reason why I love it. You know, a lot of people read this, and, well, Lewis believed in purgatory and all this, that, and the other. And, you know, getting us outside of uh, Lewis's beliefs on whether there was a purgatory or not, one of the things that I love about this book is in the foreword of this book, Lewis talks about the idea of a supposal. He doesn't even acknowledge that his beliefs may or may not be true. All he says is, suppose a bus were to go to hell and pick up a group of people and take them to heaven. What would that look like? Hmm. And I love how he brings it out. First of all, when you get into this world, 
every one of the ghosts that were in hell are literally ghosts. There's nothing to them. They're these shallow, wispy, wispy people. And Lewis uses that intentionally because the people who come and meet them and talk to them are what are called the solid people. Yes, that's right. And you learn over a period of time that the longer you stay in this country, the more solid you become, hmm. the more impressive you become. And one of my absolute favorite um, – there are several favorite scenes in this book, uh, several famous quotes and favorite quotes from this book. One of my favorite quotes is the line um, where the the main guy from hell is with his teacher and learning everything. And one of the things that um, he learns is uh, the teacher says to him, you know, in the end – God is – we are either going to say to God, thy will be done, or God is going to say to us, thy will be done. That's right. Um, and I just – I love that. You know, it's so great and simple that, you know, either we are going to turn and surrender our will to God or God is going to turn and let and surrender our will to us. And let us and have it. Let us have it. Yep. yep. And so one of my favorite lines um, from the book and then one of my favorite scenes from the book is this guy – who is one of the ghosts is has this little creature on his shoulder that seems to symbolize lust. And this angel comes to him and uh, wants to kill it, but he can't just automatically take it and kill it. He, the, the man has to allow him to kill it. And he, the man finds out that this is going to be a painful process. And eventually he relinquishes the control and the man starts to become this beautiful, solid person and then you look over and you see the creature that was once there turns into the beautiful horse. And the man gets on the horse and rides away. And the, the teacher looks at him and the student's kind of confused. And he says, don't, don't you see, don't you understand that every horrible thing comes from something good? It has a beautiful side. And so, right, right once, once it's allowed to be made holy – it turns into something better than you could That's have ever amazing. imagined. Um, and so I just, I love the imagery in that book. I love you encounter all of these different characters who are going through different emotional feelings where you have this man who is, you know, who's being delivered from this, this, again, this lust where he's riding off um, to the hillside to, you know, the kingdom of God. Um, and then you have this woman who, you know, wants her son and wants to see her son, but is not being allowed to. And, you know, you have these moments where like, where it's like, well, it, it seems kind of cruel that she would be in hell just because she loved her son too much. And, you know, the teacher just goes on to explain, no, she didn't love him too much. She loved him too little. She loved him so little that she would be willing to have him in hell with her just so she could have him mm-hmm. instead of, joining him in heaven. Mm, terrible. You know, and so you see like these these great situations and stories and you you empathize with the characters and um so I just I absolutely love that book and this is another one uh another book that I have actually um read every year for the past 6 years um since I started okay. teaching it. You must know those books. Yeah, the, and it's just it's because they're just Again, they're they're such great books, and to me, once you kind of get through them, um, you know they're 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 excellent books just to really wrap yourself in and and just get yourself reimmersed in um, every year. So, 
next for you? Is this my number five? Is this my last one for this podcast? Uh, this is your number five, yeah. All right. I'm going to squeeze in three books. It's actually five volumes. Nice. <laughs> uh, but they're all by the same author. Nice. So I'm going to squeeze them all into this one. Uh, the author is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Mm. Uh, perhaps you've heard him. Uh, and the three books that I'll mention by him are, well, the first one of his that I ever read was uh, a three-volume set called The Gulag Archipelago. <laughs> so that's about the uh, prison camps in Siberia, the Ukraine, uh, northern Russia. And uh, he, had be, he had found himself in one of those prison camps. He had been a soldier, if I remember right, but I'm not sure. I think he was a tank commander. But he wrote a letter to somebody that was critical of somebody else in the military, somebody above him. Mm. And, of course, all your letters got read. Right. Right? <laughs> Everything you do was yes. looked at. So uh, he went to court for it. He lost, and they sent him to Siberia. Um, so he spent years living in a prison camp, and, and he calls them the Gulag Archipelago. An archipelago is a bunch of little islands, mm-hmm. and those prison camps are like little islands that people get confined to. And the thing I would say about them is, uh, actually, I read them because Francis Schaeffer highly recommended them. Mm. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian uh, apologist, mm-hmm. uh, he recommended them so that we would understand more about human depravity. Mm. So if you want something really nice and cheerful to read on the beach this summer, <laughs> get, the, get the three volumes of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Gulag mm. Archipelago. Uh, I found them absolutely fascinating, riveting reading. The guy writes so well nice. um, that I couldn't put them down. And I've read several of those volumes several times anyway, even though they're big. Again, this is not one everybody ought to run out and buy. But right, somebody's right. going to have a taste for it, and they're going to really enjoy it. Now, by the same author, there's also uh, one called Cancer Ward. At a certain point, Solzhenitsyn himself had cancer, mm. went to have it treated, lived for a while in the cancer ward with other cancer patients. But a, a lot of them, he was an intellectual, and he tended to gather with anybody who was an intellectual anywhere he went. So he gathered with intellectuals who were also in the cancer ward, and they all talked together every day, all day, about life. Mm. And these are their musings, these intellectuals sitting in the cancer ward talking about life, nice. its meaning, what it is, what matters, and stuff like that. So uh, that's a great read. And then one more I'll mention by Solzhenitsyn. It's titled The First Circle. Uh, he gets that name from Dante, Dante's Inferno. Mm, you know, yes. There's Paradiso and there's Inferno. Yes. And in the Inferno, uh, the outer limits of hell are purgatory. And then you have seven circles, uh, one inside another, inside another, inside another. So the outer circle, the outermost biggest circle is uh, circle number one or the first circle. Mm-hmm. And in it were the great intellectuals of the past, the great writers um, even though they had not been baptized, had not heard about Christ, uh, people who died without being baptized, he puts in the first circle. Dante does. So the first circle had philosophers. Mm-hmm. And Solzhenitsyn was a philosopher and a thinker. And like I said, he gathered with other intellectuals everywhere he went. So he writes about the first circle being these gatherings of all these intellectuals in the prison camps and what they talked about all the time. Yes. So just fascinating stuff. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, it is the kind of thing I will read on vacation, but I've been criticized for that. <laughs> Not by my wife, but other people. You right, read right. Souls and Eats it on vacation? I do. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Hey, different strokes for different folks, right? That's right. <laughs> That's excellent. 
All right. So coming down to my last recommendation for this uh, this part one of our podcast, um, I'm going to go with a uh, another uh, nonfiction, um, and this is this is one that I think everyone should put on their list. I think this book is fantastic, and that is uh, Valley of Vision. Oh yeah. It's a uh, compilation prayer that. book. Compilation prayer book, uh, different Puritan prayers divided up into different uh, j- different sections. So you have a section on God's grace and praying through God's grace. You have a section on human depravity, praying through you know our depravity in humanity. A section on uh, the cross of Christ and praying through that. The section on um, uh, glorified God, glorified Father, Son, Holy Spirit, praying through those things. Um, so just a a wonderful book that you could you can just sit through and I actually um I've been doing this recently with the book just at the at the end of the evening um we'll just open up to one and that is my prayer for the night before I oh, go nice. to bed um and you know just reading through those and and the understanding that the puritans had on on human depravity on God's holiness they're they're not always the uh stuck up curmudgeons we think they are mm-hmm. you know there there's just a true sense of understanding the joy um that is in christ and the joy that is um set before us and so uh for me uh like i said th- this is one that i think um you know every christian should just go out and buy and have because it is just such a wonderful resource a lot of times now if somebody asks me to pray in public, I will look at something that is appropriate uh-huh. for the situation, and I will just read through uh, through that prayer because it is um, just so well crafted and and thought out. Pretty cool. You you just reminded me of another book, though. You were talking about the Puritans and how mm-hmm. they they were not curmudgeons and stuff. Who wrote that book? Worldly Saints. Worldly Saints. It was about I think the uh, New England and British Puritans. And how they uh, dressed really sharp, mm-hmm. enjoyed great, uh, you know, alcohol. Yeah, um, they liked sex. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, great book, Leland. Someone, Leland Riken, I believe, wrote that. Okay, Probably maybe so. we can, uh, maybe we can rec- real quick. Uh, we'll look that up uh, for next. Yeah, for next week's uh, podcast, and we'll have that next week. So. All right. Sounds good. All right. So this is uh, part one of uh, Steve and Nathan's uh, top 10 books. You got the first five from Steve and the first five from me, Nathan. And we're going to go ahead and sign off and we'll pick up next week. I just want to say first, though. Yeah. Man, I enjoyed this. Isn't this I'm so good? glad you decided we're going to – this was Nathan's idea, this topic. We're going to talk about books. I could do this every time we podcast, but we should not. Huh? We shouldn't. But, Steve, you did give me a great idea because, um, you know, Greg and I typically had a, a little riffing section we did on the beginning of our podcast. Um, which was mostly Greg just kind of talking about sports and lamenting sports. Um, (laughs) And so to me, you brought this up. You said you would love to do this. I think it would be great if, um, if on the beginning of the podcast, you would uh, give your book recommendation for the week. Oh, that'd be awesome. So I think that's something that our listeners can look forward to coming up in the future is uh, Steve's book, Steve's weekly book recommendation. I better keep a list of them so I don't recommend the same one right. over and over. You know. Oh, he's on Calvin's Institutes again. And then and then a year later you can be like, now I know I recommended this yeah. one, but <laughs> I've got to recommend it again. That's right. So, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and sign off. Steve, we just rocked the Casbah. These go to 11. <laughs>